If you know me at all, you know that I love true crime. I like researching cases and putting the pieces together and helping tell people's stories when they can't tell it for themselves. A voice for the voiceless, if you will. That is why I love Anchor. It's an easy platform in which I can share these stories with you for free. Anchor makes creating podcasts easy with editing tools, and I can record from my phone or my computer. And I can make money from my podcast, in which I can donate to various causes, with no minimum listenership. It's everything I need to make my podcast in one place. Download Anchor for free at anchor.fm or go to anchor.fm to get started. Spencer reached out when they learned George Bell was now in custody in Rankin County instead of Parchman Prison. And 16 WABT investigates today. We found out why. Since October, Linda Henley Francombe has been trying to find out why George Bell, the man who murdered her daughter, Heather Spencer, had been moved from Parchman to Rankin County's Central Mississippi Correctional Facility, Unit 1A. That's where they put basically more or less prisoners who... I guess they've shown more model behavior. I don't know why uh, someone who is in prison for life on a murder sentence would be one of the ones that was selected to be moved from parchment. Frankholm says she called MDOC, the AG, and wrote to the governor before posting on Facebook to find out why. Today, MDOC Commissioner Burl Kane gave us the answer. Inmate George Bell III took someone else's life 12 years ago, and the courts gave him a life sentence, which he'll serve to the fullest. He cannot be pardoned or paroled, so his punishment doesn't change. What has changed is Mr. Bell's heart through the study of scripture and application of those lessons. He's even completed a three-year graduate course in theology, has become a counselor for other inmates. Mr. Bell acknowledges that he committed a terrible crime, is remorseful for it, but he's powerless to correct it, except by influencing others away from crime. Francombe says she can't believe it. He is a master manipulator. He knows what it takes to get what he wants. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, and I can forgive people, but... When you've been through what I have and when you've seen a person's true colors, um, you know, I just, I think he's doing this to get just what he has gotten and that's an easier life. Frank Holmes says Bell told her daughter he'd changed two days before she was murdered. Mary Heather Spencer was murdered by her boyfriend of one year, George Bell III in Jackson, Mississippi, on September 11th of 2008. She was only 28 years old. This murder sent shockwaves throughout the city of Jackson, and Heather Spencer would soon become the face for anything having to do with domestic violence against women. But before we can get into how or why this happened, we've got to go back to the beginning and get to know a little bit about the people we'll be talking about today. Mary Heather Spencer, simply known as Heather, was born to her parents Linda Francom and Dan Spencer on March 10, 1979. Heather grew up in the small Delta town of Indianola with her parents and brother Zan until they moved to Rankin County and Heather began her freshman year of high school at Northwest Rankin High. Heather had that mysterious quality that made all men she met fall for her. Plus, she was gorgeous, smart, and kind. She was the girl voted most beautiful by her classmates 
and could have gotten any guy she wanted. But by September of 2008, Heather Spencer had been dating a guy named George Bell III for a year and a half. George Bell was the third generation of the prominent Jackson, Mississippi family known for their carpet and rug business. George was thought of as charming and intelligent by many who knew him. He helped with the family-owned carpet business from time to time, but had branched out a little and began co-owning a car lot with one of his friends. But things started going wrong in his life around the time he and Heather started dating. His business was failing, and his frustration led him to cocaine and steroids. Although friends had been quoted as saying he spoiled and doted on Heather at first, bringing her flowers and buying her things, both of the, their friends thought that they had the, quote, fairy tale type of relationship. But as we all know, what a relationship looks like on the outside isn't always what it really is on the inside. And Heather's friends and family would soon see how shattered this fairy tale relationship actually was. So let's go back to June of 2007. Heather and George had been dating for a while. And on this morning, George decided to use Heather's spare key to break into her house, the house Heather had shared with her roommate and best friend named Elizabeth. And according to Elizabeth, who had been woken up from all the noise in the house, she stated that when she got up, went to Heather's room, she saw George standing over Heather and he was hitting her in her head with a rubber mallet. Elizabeth said when she saw this, she had screamed at George to, quote, get off of her, end quote. And after she started screaming at him, he dropped the bloody mallet on the floor beside the bed and took off out the door, stealing Heather's car to get away from the house. Elizabeth said she picked Heather up, put her in her car, and took her to the hospital because it was only a block away from where the two lived at the time. And on the way there, she dialed 911. An officer had met Heather and Elizabeth at the hospital where Heather ended up having to get 57 stitches in her head. But Heather refused to press charges against George. Her friends and family said she didn't press any charges at all on George after this because, quote, she wanted to see the best in him because that's the kind of person she is. She sees the best in everyone, end quote. Her mother said, quote, she thought with her help she could make him a better person, end quote. So she didn't press charges. She loved him, and he went unpunished for this incident. After word got out, after everyone found out about what George did to Heather, George's friends had actually came forward and said that they had been with him the night before he beat Heather and that they knew for a fact that George was extremely high on cocaine and X pills. So instead of doing any kind of jail time or facing the consequences for what he did to Heather, George instead decided to go to check himself into a rehab facility called Narconon. So, George Bell spent roughly three months in the Narconon facility in Arrowhead, Oklahoma as a, quote, voluntary student, end quote, dealing with his drug problem, allegedly. Narconon is an extremely controversial program. It includes extensive sauna sessions, massages, and heavy doses of vitamins and mineral supplements. It also uses the rehabilitation concept 
of Scientology and the founder of this rehabilitation facility was not even an addiction specialist. When I researched this rehab for this episode, I was shocked at the things that has happened there over the years. So many of their patients have died from drug overdoses. They have so many lawsuits pending against them as well. In my opinion, this rehab center sounds like a joke, but people around George Bell wanted to believe it would work, and they all helped convince Heather that it would rehabilitate him. His family telling her, quote, drug addiction can be cured, just stand by him, end quote. And one of Heather's friends had said that Heather actually told her that the Narconon facility actually told Heather that what George did to her was a one-time thing, that he was not an abuser. What he did to her was only because of the drugs, but they could cure him. But as we know, that just dealing with a drug problem doesn't necessarily deal with the core set of beliefs that lead men to abuse women. The facility had absolutely no right to tell Heather this, in my opinion. But Heather believed this, or at least she wanted to. We will never know what Heather truly thought, because as soon as George Bell came home from rehab, he would murder his girlfriend, Heather Spencer. Now, while George was away in rehab, Heather did gradually convince herself, with the help of others, of course, that it was the drugs that were at fault. She wanted to believe that, because she loved George, and the man she loved wouldn't do that to her sober. And she knew that he had been stressed, because she had witnessed his dealership going under, probably because George was paying for drugs instead of paying his bills, but she figured when he got sober, things would be great between them. And without him spending his money on drugs, he could get his dealership back on the right track as well. So she thought things would go back to normal when he got home. Heather's friends suspected that her belief that it was the drugs and only the drugs that made George abuse her might have also had something to do with the amount of time Heather had spent with George's mother, especially while George was away in rehab. Heather's mother had lived at a distance in Michigan, so she couldn't really spend time with her, so she basically stayed with George's mom, Robbie. And when Heather's friends questioned why she was spending so much time with the mother of the man who brutally beat her while canceling outings with them, instead, nearly every day, Heather would be at Robbie Bell's house to sort through boxes of paperwork. She would be reconciling titles, contacting creditors, finance companies, and lawyers. Heather's response to her friends was, quote, I'm all Robbie has left, end quote. Her friend said there were a lot of missed dinners and a lot of missed lunches and a lot of missed phone calls because Heather was staying up so late, literally working her fingers to the bone on George's business while he was in rehab. George's mother, Robbie, had basically brainwashed Heather, like basically made her feel like she had to help. She had to stay with George. So like many victims of domestic abuse, Heather was convinced that George would get better if she helped him if the rehab helped him, if she stood by him, if she was doing her best to salvage what was left of his business while he was in rehab. Heather stayed in frequent contact with George by email and cell phone while he was in rehab. Heather had told her friends that George was getting better and that she was looking forward to him coming home. But Heather became more and more isolated from anyone outside of Robbie and George Bell's sphere of influence. 
in such a short span of time while trying to convince everyone that she was in control of the situation. Heather told her mother, quote, I'm not going to jump back in and do anything. I'm going to give it time, end quote. She also stated, quote, I'm not going to get back into the same kind of relationship we had before. I'm just going to take my time, end quote. But what Heather didn't know is that she wouldn't have time. Because like I said, George was coming home soon, and when he got home, he would murder his girlfriend. On September 8, 2008, the Bell family and Heather Spencer had all celebrated George's return to Jackson from the Narconon facility, and allegedly everyone had a great reunion in time with George Bell. His family was excited to see him, and so was Heather. September 8th seemed like a good day, a new start, the next chapter of Heather and George's life together. People who saw Heather that day said that she was smiling. She seemed happy to have George home. But tragically, just two days later, that all would change. At about 8 p.m. on September 10th, Robbie Bell arrived at her home from work at 4652 Traywick Drive. And what she found when she walks into her North Jackson home on Traywick Drive is a matter of speculation, as neither mother nor son has ever told their stories publicly, which obviously leaves tons of room for us to speculate. But at or around 1.27 a.m. that same night, or early morning hours of September 11th, a private security company that patrols in Robbie Bell's North Jackson neighborhood believes that he may have seen Spencer on Traywick Drive. He saw a young woman fitting her description and stopped to ask if everything was okay. The woman was out looking for her dog, and she, and she told the security guard that she was looking for a Jack Russell Terrier, white in color, except it had a black head. The dog the woman was looking for fits the description of George Bell's dog perfectly, so it most likely was Heather. The security guard also stated that nothing in the woman's conduct, verbal or nonverbal, indicated any stressful or unusual situation, he said. Once she found the dog, he saw her return to 4652 Traywick Drive, Robbie Bell's house, and the security guard actually noted this in his activity report for that night. Later, after Heather's body would be found and sent off for an autopsy, the Hines County Coroner, Sharon Grissom Stewart, would state in her report that Spencer died at around 3 a.m. on September 11th, some seven hours after Robbie Bell came home the night before and roughly 90 minutes after the security officer claims he saw her. The coroner also puts the time of injury at 3 a.m. So, George had murdered Heather at his mother's home between 2 and 3 on the morning of the 11th, but he wasn't done yet. By 7.30 a.m. on the 11th, George drove Heather's Camry to the home that she shared with her roommate, Elizabeth. Elizabeth said she woke to the sound of her dog barking and she looked outside and saw George Bell sitting outside of her Parkwood Place house. She knew he had just returned to Jackson three days before this from rehab. She said that George Bell just came in and sat on the bed and he said he just wanted to talk. Elizabeth would later tell the police in a statement that, quote, he told me that he killed his baby, meaning Heather, and that he did a lot of coke, end quote. Elizabeth said George was agitated and acting irrationally, telling her that he had done something very bad, that he had killed the only person that he loved. 
Elizabeth would also write in her statement later on to the police that he dumped more cocaine on her glass coffee table in their living room and snorted it. He turned on the shower at one point and he blew his nose with a kitchen towel, leaving it on the counter. She then stated that he pulled a gun and said that he wanted to kill himself, but he said before he did that, he wanted Elizabeth to have sex with him and give him a blowjob. And when Elizabeth refused this, he forced her at gunpoint into the green Camry, Heather's car, and drove her back to his mother's Trawick Drive home where Robbie Bell and George Bell escorted her into the house. Elizabeth said, quote, I looked at Robbie and asked her if all of this was true, and she said yes. She had been held up all night long, end quote. Robbie Bell had not called the police, not even while her son was away from the house. In fact, her cell phone records for the night show no calls between 7.32 p.m. on September 10th until 9.19 a.m. on September 11th, when she checked her voicemail. Whether Bell attacked Spencer before his mother came home that night or after is a matter of pure speculation, like I said, as is the question of whether Spencer was alive for any length of time after the attack, contrary to rumors. Still... Questions remain about Robbie Bell's behavior that night and why, even when Bell left the house and showed up at Elizabeth's house in her bedroom, why didn't Robbie call the police then? She never called an ambulance for Heather and never called the police. Her failure to act is morally questionable, but not every morally questionable thing is illegal. I know a lot of people hate Robbie Bell. I can't honestly say that I agree with anything that she did here either. But what she did wasn't illegal. It was not morally right, but it wasn't illegal. It wasn't a crime. So, I mean, this case could have been the kind of case that nudges the law in a new direction. Like 15 years ago, stalking charges weren't even, you know, in place. So, I mean, things happen so laws can change. But anyways, Robbie Bell's first two calls on her cell phone that morning were to check her voicemail. Then at 9.49 a.m., she called her brother-in-law, James Bell, asking him to come to her house urgently. When he arrived, Robbie Bell led him through the house into the backyard. James Bell would later tell the police that, quote, I saw blood on the floor of the living room and den, end quote. His nephew, George Bell III, was in the yard behind the house with Elizabeth Hall. Someone, most likely Robbie Bell, asked him to speak with her son confidentially, in his capacity as a lawyer. James Bell would also later tell the police that, quote, I came to the conclusion that my nephew might have killed his girlfriend last night and her body might be somewhere in the house, end quote. Then he said, quote, Elizabeth told me that Bell had taken cocaine and when he took the drug, he wasn't himself, like he was possessed by demons. I learned that he had a gun somewhere and that he had been psychotic and he had been hallucinating and that he had been seeing SWAT officers behind every corner, end quote. James Bell said that he prayed with his nephew and then asked him to go to the police. He would later tell the police officers, James Bell, that, quote, he told me that he didn't see a reason why he should be alive, end quote. He also added that both he and Robbie Bell tried to talk the young man into turning himself in, 
When George Bell went inside the house to use the restroom and get a drink, James Bell took the opportunity to get Elizabeth Hall away from the house. He even asked Robbie to come with them, but Robbie denied, saying, quote, she wasn't going to leave her son, end quote. So James and Elizabeth Hall leave, and while they were driving, they saw a police officer, and they flagged him down. The police officer pulled over and instructed them to follow him to a Highland Village parking lot, and this is at around 10.30 a.m. in the morning. So they stopped by Java Works, and James Bell and the police officer both stepped out of their vehicles, at which point James told him, the officer, which was Sergeant Wall, what was going on. After hearing what James Bell had to say, Wall called for backup. He called on Sergeant Grant Parker, Officer H.L. Bullock, and Officer Frederick Samuel, and they converged on the location, where Sergeant Wall briefed them on what he knew. The police began strategizing on how they would approach Robbie Bell's Traywick Drive house. It was then that James Bell got another call from Robbie Bell, informing him that she and Bell had left the house. Her son was scared that the uncle, James, would call the police, she told him. And Bell asked her, James Bell asked her, was he going to turn himself in? Is that where you guys are going? And she said, no, not yet. I'm trying to talk him into it, though. Robbie Bell told James Bell that her son wanted to get cigarettes and a drink, and that the older Bell, which is George Bell Jr., told her to meet him at the BP gas station at the corner of Northside Drive and Interstate 55 near McWillie Drive. James Bell told police officers the gist of the conversation, at which point Sergeant Wall saw Robbie Bell's 2006 Black Infinity G35 driving west on Northside Drive. The officers followed the car to the gas station, and Parker informed the others that, quote, the white male in the vehicle, end quote, was armed, and they took up combat positions surrounding the car. Sergeant Wall could see George Bell holding a silver gun to his head, putting it in his mouth and under his chin. The gun, a thirty-eight caliber Smith Wesson four forty-two Special that sells for around $600, was registered to Robbie Bell. Sergeant Parker cautiously approached the car and saw the door opening. Robbie Bell was trying to get out on the driver's side of the car, and Sergeant Parker saw that George Bell had a hold of her arm, preventing her from leaving. So Parker yelled, let, let go of her, to George, like, let her go. And after a few moments, George Bell let her loose. Parker told Robbie Bell to get the keys out of the ignition, but she didn't listen to that. Parker took the mother to his cruiser, where, he wrote in his report, she called George Bell on his cell phone and handed it to the officer. So George Bell was on the phone with Sergeant Parker, and he told him that he was in the process of going to see his lawyer and turn himself in, but that he wanted to do it on his own time. The officers called for a hostage negotiator, the Jackson SWAT team, and medical personnel while evacuating the BP gas station. Lieutenant Gerald Jones, the negotiator, and the SWAT team relieved the officers and took control of the whole situation. With numerous SWAT guns trained on him, Bell held them off for nearly four hours. The gun pointed at his head. At one point, police gave Bell water and cigarettes. His father, George Bell Jr., arrived on the scene around 12.30 p.m. 
At approximately 3.15 p.m., George Bell finally put his gun down and gave up to the police. So Robbie and George were transported to police headquarters in Officer Samuel's cruiser, where George Bell was later charged with capital murder and kidnapping. So when they got to the police station and they searched Robbie and George, among George's effects was $1,178 in cash. Both of them declined to provide statements to the police. Bell admitted to Detective Jerry Shoulders at the gas station that he did have drugs in his system. He had been doing cocaine all night long and that he was exhausted. So let's talk about the crime scene for a second. So at about 11 a.m. on September 11th, while the standoff drama was just beginning at the BP gas station, Jackson Deputy Chief Brent Winstead ordered Sergeant Eric Smith to 4652 Traywick Drive to investigate. He, Lieutenant Joseph Wade, and Sergeant Alfred Cooper met Officer Donald Broom, who had already arrived at the house. The door to the four-bedroom house wasn't locked. Two dogs, Bell's dog and Heather Spencer's dog, met the officers at the door, and after a brief search, they found Heather's body in the bedroom to the right of the foyer. Officer Broom's statement says that the officer saw blood splatter on one of the doors in the hallway and a large area of coagulated blood on the floor, which is where crime scene investigators placed the assault. Pushing open one of two doors, they found a motionless body partially covered with towels, the head bloody. They saw a large flashlight, a mag flashlight, which would later be identified as the murder weapon, on the bed. When American Medical Response personnel arrived, they quickly determined that Heather Spencer was dead. Removing the towels, they saw she was wearing only a purple tank top. Crime scene officers found her white pants and panties near her 